If you would take your Bibles and open them up to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 is going to be the biblical text we're going to spend our time in together this morning. Hebrews 3. And we will read beginning in verse 12 through verse 19. However, I suppose the text proper is going to be verses 12, 13, and 14. We'll spend the majority of our time just in those few verses, perhaps making mention of what follows. But again, we will read Hebrews 3, verses 12 through 19. And when you arrive there, because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, would you please stand if you are able to hear from the God who still speaks in his word. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked? For 40 years, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. I came to know and trust Jesus Christ toward the latter part of my high school days, as I've shared before from this pulpit. Immediately after coming to know Jesus Christ, I became a part of a local church by God's grace. And I've shared this from time to time. I've never known a, a Christianity in my personal life that was severed from the local church. And for that, I am deeply grateful. That's probably one of the reasons, one of the instruments the Lord used to call me to gospel ministry in the context of the local church. Well, in addition to the more formal mentorship that I began to receive from my local church pastor, Pastor Willie Clark, I became close friends with a few young men around my age. And these friendships, as even as I have recently reflected, these friendships served as a breath of fresh air to a young follower of Jesus Christ, just learning what it means to kind of crawl as a Christian in hopes that someday I might learn how to walk. One of the reasons why these friendships were a breath of fresh air was because coming to Jesus Christ meant leaving an already existing community. I had many friendships at the time. But those friendships were characterized by what displeased the Lord. And so, coming to embrace Jesus Christ demanded coming to forsake 
already existing friendships. I still loved them, and I think they would affirm to this day that they knew I loved them. But I communicated to them that I could no longer spend time in the ways that I had spent time prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. I desperately needed community. In fact, I have some memories early on as a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and I don't know how long this lasted. I don't think it was very long because these new friendships that I'm talking about, these began to form fairly quickly, but I do have memories as a young follower of Jesus, brand new to the faith, just having come to trust in Jesus. I remember spending weekends in my bedroom, which was never where I spent weekends, evenings and nights in my bedroom, all alone with the Bible open, of course, because I had a hunger for the word of God. By God's grace, of course, God was doing a work in me, but also because the only friendships I had were characterized during those times in particular on the weekends by things that displeased the Lord. And so I spent some evenings alone. I needed friendships. I needed a new community. So on some level, what I received through these new friendships was a new community. One of the characteristics of these new friendships was what I would call accountability. I remember having a series of conversations, just a group of young men, perhaps overly zealous at times in areas we should not be overly zealous, thinking things are clearer than they are at times than they actually are, right? But I remember having conversations about what pleased the Lord and what displeased the Lord. In fact, I remember having the most passionate debate because a friend of mine dared to travel a couple miles per hour over the speed limit. (laughs) Some of you may think that's a bit legalistic, but you must understand we desired to honor the Lord at root. We really did. It was misguided at times. However, we remained friends, and through those friendships, we experienced accountability. And, and so we, we knew that our brothers in the Lord were watching us and were there for us and were praying for us. And these friendships served as an instrument of sanctification in my life the first couple of years of following Jesus Christ. We overstepped at times. I know I did. I know I did. But I loved these brothers, and they loved me as well. And that love manifested through intentional accountability. In a new community, I was beginning to see as the body of Christ. Well, this morning, we are going to talk about a key characteristic of what it means to be a healthy church member. We are toward the end of a series on what it means to be a healthy church member, taking a brief break from our exposition in the book of Acts. And so this morning, we're highlighting another one of those key characteristics, and the key characteristic is accountability. You could summarize the sermon this morning with the following proposition. A healthy church member embraces accountability in the church. A healthy church member embraces accountability accountability in the church. And to look at this essential ingredient of being a healthy church member, we will walk through Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12, 13, and 14 primarily by discovering one central command, okay? So this is the outline for the sermon. It's a bit different than is typical 
but I think it grows right out of the text. There's one central command, and we're not going to spend long on that one command. We're just going to point it out. I'll do that in just a second. And then there are three questions that are answered regarding that one central command. Let me show you quickly. This is still the outline. You can jot these things down. A bit of a roadmap for us for the remainder of our time together in God's word. Notice the beginning in verse 12. Again, we're just pointing out the outline at this point. Beginning of verse 12, take care, brothers. Some translations read properly as well, watch out, brothers and sisters. And I, I tend to prefer something like watch out. This is a warning. Be careful, watch out. This is the primary or central command of these few verses. We're not going to spend time unpacking the nature of this command. And the reason is this. There are three questions that are answered about the command that actually unpack the command. So that's the outline. Central command, watch out. Now three questions about that central command. And here are the three questions, all right? Jot these down if you're taking notes. First, we're going to ask and answer the question, watch out for what? What are we watching out for? The text tells us. The second question we're going to ask and answer about this central command, watch out, is how should we watch out? So watch out for what? And then secondly, how should we watch out? Again, the Spirit of God tells us in the text. And then finally, the third question we're going to ask and answer this morning in addition to watch out for what and how should we watch out, is why should we watch out? Why should we watch out? That's the outline for us this morning. And I do want to mention for our younger worshipers a couple of things that those who are younger in the room can be looking for in the text. And these are simple things that will be included in our outline but aren't really central to our outline. So younger worshipers, there are a couple of things I want you to pay close attention to as we're walking through this text. Are you ready? Here they are. First of all, I want you to be able to answer this question. How is God described in this text? How is God described in this text? And then secondly, younger worshiper, ask and answer this question. How is sin described? How is God described in the text? And how is sin described? And those will fit nicely, I think, into our broader outline. Watch out for what? How should we watch out? And why should we watch out. Well, let's answer our first question together. Watch out for what? Look with me at verse 12, if you would. Take care, as the English Standard Version reads, or watch out, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. It's quite simple, isn't it? Services immediately. Our text instructs us to watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart. That's what we're watching out for. Watch out for a heart that is evil and unbelieving and even leads to falling away from the living God. In some sense, this is a warning against apostasy, against forfeiting our Christianity in favor of something else. Departing finally from Jesus Christ, rejecting the gospel, 
having come apparently at least or ostensibly to embrace the gospel than rejecting the gospel. We'll talk a bit about that here in just a little while. So watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. There are a few things I do want to pay close attention to in the text. I want you to notice in verse 12 the relationship between evil and unbelief. Did you see that? Watch out, brothers, for an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The heart that is evil is the unbelieving heart, and the unbelieving heart is the heart that is characterized by evil. Additionally, look down at verses 17, 18, and 19. This is just one of those moments where we can look at the broader context. Look at verse 17, and we'll read through verse 19. Beginning in verse 17, where the Hebrews author, carried along by the Spirit of God, is talking about this generation led out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses that eventually perishes in the wilderness. Verse 17, and with whom was God provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Verse 18, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were, notice, disobedient? And then verse 19 So we see that they, that is the generation of Israelites that perished in the wilderness, they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. They were unable to enter because of unbelief. What's important to understand in Scripture is that sin is always motivated by unbelief. Always. When I sin, I sin because fundamentally I'm not trusting the goodness and the sovereignty of God. We find this, of course, in Genesis chapter 3. Why do Adam and Eve sin? Well, they sin because they believe the lie of a serpent. They disbelieve God's word. So it is with us. Anytime I sin against the Lord, I'm motivated in part by the presence of unbelief. And so even as the Hebrews author goes on to unpack the relationship between evil and unbelief, he says at root, as it were, at root, all evil grows out of the presence of an unbelieving heart. And this is what the Hebrews author is warning us Against, Watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart leading you potentially to fall away from the living God. Now, younger worshiper, you can pay close attention to this, can't you? Verse 12, how is God described? Living. The evil, unbelieving heart leads you to fall away from the living God. This is a common way to describe God throughout Scripture. It, it distinguishes the true God from false gods, In fact, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica that he rejoices that they have embraced the word of God and they've turned from worshiping idols, false gods, to worshiping and serving the true and living God. In other words, false gods are not alive. There's no life in them. Moreover, they can't provide life for others. God alone is the source of all life. And so by implication, if we are to depart from the living God, we're departing from the source of our spiritual life. When one departs from God, that person runs into eternal destruction, death, lifelessness. That's the idea in the text. Now, before we transition 
to our second question, I want you to consider with me where this evil, unbelieving heart resides. This is still under the first question. As it were, what are we to watch out for? Watch out for what? But where does this evil, unbelieving heart reside? Where does it come from? By its very nature, it comes from within us. Notice what the text says. Take care, brothers, lest there be where? In any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. An evil, unbelieving heart is something that happens within us. We're tempted, I think, at least I am, I'm tempted to believe that my fundamental problem with sin is outside of me. Culture is the problem. Politics are the problem. Particular music or movies are the problem. Temptations outside of me are primarily the problem. But Scripture consistently warns us against sin that resides within us. Dear church family, don't miss this in the text. Since the fall of humanity in Genesis chapter 3, we are conceived in sin. And this is why the Word of God refers to us as sinners. From the moment we begin to exist in this life, we have been altered by and polluted by sin. So Romans 5, 19 says, for as by the one man's, that is Adam's, disobedience, the many were made sinners. G.K. Chesterton, famous English and prolific writer, in answer to the question, what is wrong in the world? You know what he wrote? What is wrong in the world? I am wrong. I am wrong in the world. By the way, this is why we need a Savior who doesn't merely offer forgiveness to us, but provides internal transformation. This is why what I need is not simply to be washed clean, as it were, to receive a clean slate. I'll mess it up all over again. You see, if you, if you were to wipe away my sins, I'll go right back to where I began. What I need actually is for someone to transform me from the inside out. And that is precisely the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 5.19, the passage I quoted a moment ago, where the apostle Paul writes, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. He goes on to write these words, so by the one man's obedience, that is the obedience of Jesus Christ through his incarnation, his life, and his death on the cross, and then, of course, culminating in his resurrection, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's good news, isn't it? We talk a lot about the death and resurrection of Christ, and rightfully so, rightfully so. Christ died for our sins and was raised is the Christian message, right? It's what we proclaim and what we will proclaim until the return of Jesus Christ. However, I don't miss this, church. If the work of Christ remains outside of us, it doesn't finally benefit us. It can't finally take care of our problem if Christ died for our sins and was raised and that stays outside of me. What I need is for God to take that work and apply it inside of me. 
And that's precisely why it's important in the New Testament that we believe that the Holy Spirit comes and resides where? In us. According to Jesus, it's the Spirit who comes and bears witness to Christ. This is all as that we're a part of the gospel. So Christ dies in our place and for our sins. He's buried, he's raised in glorious power. And the Spirit of God, who is known, by the way, a couple of times in the New Testament as the Spirit of Christ, that Spirit of God takes that glorious gospel and applies it to our hearts and begins to transform our affections and our wills. And we are authentically changed. Slowly, more slowly than we would like, perhaps. But we are changed by God's grace. Friends, if you've never experienced that change, if you've never been able to say, you know what, by God's grace, I'm beginning to love things that please God and I'm beginning to hate things that displease him. I find myself certainly struggling and and going back to this folly and foolishness. Nevertheless, I'm broken when I do. If you've never experienced that kind of tension growing in Christ's likeness, let me submit to you that perhaps you need to come to grips with the reality that Jesus Christ is sufficient for you that he died in your place and for your sins, that he was buried, that he was raised in glorious power, and through faith in Jesus Christ, you can have life, not simply forgiveness, indeed you can, but life that begins now. Transformation that begins to happen now through the presence of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to talk more about this, we would love to talk with you and to come alongside of you and you potentially come alongside of us as we learn what it means to live a life in the power of the Spirit of God for the glory of Christ. And you can meet us even after service at the crossroads on your way out this morning on the right-hand side out there. Go in there and have a conversation with one of our church leaders so we can be praying for you and you potentially also be praying for us. Well, so far, we've observed that we are to watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart leading us to fall away from the living God. Now let's consider the answer to our second question. The second question this morning is how? How should we watch out? How should we watch out for this evil, unbelieving heart that potentially leads us to fall away from the living God? Now, don't miss this. If our fundamental problem is within us, what can we possibly do to help ourselves against this problem. After all, we are the problem. We are the problem. Now look with me at verse 13, part A. But exhort, notice, one another. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Now, let's answer it simply. How should we watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart through giving and receiving accountability. That's how we do it. We watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart by giving accountability to others and receiving accountability from others in the body of Christ. Now, accountability is, I think, often viewed only in its negative manner. That is, when we think about accountability, we think about correcting or rebuking another 
as he or she has fallen potentially into sin. And this is certainly a necessary ingredient of what is described in our text. You can see that very clearly. However, in addition to its negative manner, there is a positive sense in which not simply are we helping one another correct sin in our hearts and in the hearts of our brothers and sisters, but we are pointing one another to Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ. Because in the end, it will be insufficient simply to talk about the heinousness and the evil and the foolishness of sin and not actually talking about the eternal joy and the infinite majesty and the superiority of Jesus Christ. So this accountability really does get summarized in the New Testament through all of the one another's. Love one another. Forgive one another. Serve one another. Bear one another one another's burdens, and then here, exhort one another. And we need this accountability. As Christians, we need this from others, and we're given the privilege to provide it for others. Don't miss that. That's bound up in this instruction, exhort one another. And this is also why being a part of a church should not simply be limited to this larger gathering. Are you held accountable through the larger gathering? Well, in some sense, yes. Am I held accountable through the larger gathering? In some sense, indeed. But there is another sense in which we need to lean into those intimate relationships in the church and in the body of Christ through which we can give accountability and receive accountability through which we're actually known by others and through which we actually know one another. A warning, I think, may be in order here. At least it is, it is for me. Perhaps it is for you as well. Because accountability can be abused, right? Accountability can mutate into spiritual oppression if we're not cautious. To guard against this mutation, it seems to me that biblical Christian accountability is marked by three necessary characteristics, okay? I'm gonna mention these to you. Three necessary characteristics. This is the sermon within the sermon, all right? Three characteristics of of biblical and faithful Christian accountability. First, the first characteristic of the kind of accountability we find, I think, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, that kind of accountability is characterized by humility. Humility. If we do not view ourselves as people personally infected by our own sin first and foremost, we are not in a position to offer accountability to our brothers and our sisters. This is comparable, I think, to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5. Matthew 7, verses 3 through 5 includes these words. Jesus said, why do you see the speck? Now pay attention to how he describes the two sins. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? A bit of humor here from the Lord. 
Verse 4, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there is the log in your own eye. And then Jesus, of course, cuts to the chase. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. And he says this, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, what Jesus does not say, and our culture needs to hear this, we need to hear this, he does not say, do not help your brother or sister take the speck out of his or her eye. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you know what, at the end of the day, you've got your own sins, don't worry about the sins of your brothers and sisters. You do you, they'll do them. That's not what Jesus says. No, he says, first of all, you've got a log. Just know it. There's a log in your eye. The first thing you must do in offering faithful Christian accountability, you could say is to remove the log, and that's true, but I think actually more to the point is this, to recognize you have a log. You see? I don't think Jesus' point is that anytime, anywhere in human history when someone goes to help someone else remove a speck, they actually have a much larger sin in their life. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is if you see your sin rightly, you will believe yours is a log. And you'll see theirs as a speck. That's the posture of Christian accountability. I want to help you remove your speck. But I know I've got a log in my eye. And I'm willing to help you remove your speck. Would you please help me remove my log? That's the exhortation. I think it's actually quite similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the English Standard Version reads this, of whom I am the foremost. Some of the older translations read, I am chief. Are we to believe that Paul is a worse sinner than us? No, no. Paul most clearly sees Jesus Christ. And when he does... He sees the seriousness and the heinousness of his own sin. And he begins to believe that he is is the chief sinner. That's the posture of humble accountability. I am chief, and I'd love to come alongside of you as the chief sinner. Would you please come alongside of me as a brother or sister in Christ? So that's the first characteristic, humility. Second characteristic of faithful accountability is patience. Patience. Growth in Christ is often painfully slow. Do you experience that personally? I do. I mean, there are times, church family, I'm sorry to say, I wish I could give you a better pastor than this. I just can't. There are times when I'll commit a sin against my wife or my children, and I'll think, I have been praying about this sin as long as I can remember. When is it going to go away, Lord? And then, and then, of course, the moment I feel that I've got a handle on it. Because I do experience, 
I do experience, in the Lord's kindness, I experience those seasons. Perhaps we could call them victory by God's grace and the work of the Spirit. But then the moment I think I have victory, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall, right? This is why these warnings are found throughout Scripture. So if I recognize that spiritual growth and maturity in my life is slow, I'm going to be patient, aren't I? Or at least I should be patient. With my brothers and sisters, when their growth is often as slow as my own, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul instructs in this way. We urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. That's, that's corrective. Correct the idol. Rebuke the idol. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Three categories of people, it seems. And then he says this. Be patient with them all. Be patient with all of them. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience. That one virtue we are terrified to pray for, right? <laughs> this is a characteristic of faithful Christian accountability. So first, this kind of accountability we find in Hebrews chapter 3 is humble, it's patient, second, and then third, it is loving. The third characteristic of life-giving accountability is love. Paul describes this characteristic alongside of some of the others in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll, then we'll move on. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Verse 2, with all humility, there it is, and gentleness, really related concepts, humility and gentleness. He says, with patience, there's another one of our characteristics, and then he says, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another in love. And the kind of love we're talking about does not succumb to the cultural narrative that defines love as agreement. It's not the kind of love we're talking about. I'm very grateful to God that that God loved me and that doesn't mean God agreed with me or supported a lifestyle that was contrary to his design. It's not what love means in scripture. Rather, in scripture, love means the commitment to do good for another. It's the commitment to do what is good for someone else. And so that's precisely what we find with regard to Christian accountability, bearing with one another in love. It's related to patience. It's related to humility. In fact, you really probably can't have one of these without the others. It means doing hard things sometimes, brothers and sisters, but it means doing them motivated for the purpose of honoring Christ and edifying other people. There have been times when I have said to my children, see if I can get this out correctly, something like this, when, I, when I've had to correct or hold accountable or discipline in some form or fashion as a father, when I've said to them, I love you more 
than I love your esteem for me. Now, I I didn't make that up. I stole that from somebody. I don't remember whom I heard say that, but I stole it from someone I'm confident because it's helped me. Anything that's helped me has been something given to me. I love you more than I love your esteem for me. What does that mean as a parent? That means I'm willing to do something that may harm my reputation being cool in my kid's eyes because I love them. Because it's what's best for them, you see. Now, our relationships with one another is not perfectly illustrated in the relationship between a father and his children, right? There are differences there. Nevertheless, a loving relationship is a relationship characterized by the willingness to do whatever it takes for the good of other people, and that's precisely what we find concerning Christian accountability throughout Scripture. So I think, I think, and this has been a bit of an excursus, I know, an aside for us, I think that if we're doing this well by God's grace, namely holding one another accountable, If we're doing this well, we'll be doing it with humility. We'll be doing this with patience, right? Recognizing that spiritual growth is slow, painfully slow. And that's the case in our life, and it will probably be the case in our brothers' and sisters' lives. And then third, we'll be doing this with love, commitment to the good of one another. Well, we've answered two questions related to the primary command to watch out in the text, okay? Here are the two questions we've answered so far. First, we answered the question, watch out for what? And we've answered it with this, an evil, unbelieving heart that results in apostasy or leading us to fall away from the living God. We're to watch out for this evil, unbelieving heart. Second, we've asked and answered this question, how should we watch out for an unbelieving or evil heart? And the answer is, through the giving and receiving, we'll include it all here, through the giving and receiving of humble, patient, and loving accountability. We watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart as Christians and members of a local church through the giving and receiving of humble, patient, and loving accountability. Finally, last question. Why? Why should we watch out, and we won't spend as long here, I don't think. Right now, in this moment, I don't plan on it. That could change in 15 seconds, but right now, I don't. So why should we watch out for an evil, unbelieving heart by means of giving and receiving humble, patient, and loving accountability? Look with me at verses 13 and 14. And here we find, you could say there are two reasons. There are two reasons, but they're related to one another. Two reasons we should watch out for one another through accountability. Verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, and here they are, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's one reason. Second, verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So those are the two reasons. Let's Put them in different words, perhaps. The first reason we should give and receive faithful accountability is this, to protect against the deceitfulness of sin. To protect against the deceitfulness of 
sin. And we come full circle here, don't we? Our chief problem, my chief problem is me. I'm the biggest problem. Or me, myself, and I. And isn't it true, the danger, the danger of my sin is in its ability to deceive me. And if I am deceived by my sin, I am not able to see clearly unless I have the help of someone else speaking into my life. You see? This is how it works in Hebrews 3. My sin and your sin by its very nature is deceptive and works to blind us. How do we overcome self-deception? Through the use of others. The willingness to listen to other people by inviting them into our lives. Even as I say this, even as I say this, I recognize my own failures to do this well. And there are faces, I won't mention names, I wouldn't do that to them publicly. There are faces that come up in my mind of men and women who do this very well. And I have benefited immensely in the 23 going on 24 years of being a follower of Jesus Christ, not always because I invited accountability, but because God in his mercy insisted on it. And he sent me people who insisted on it as well. I'll never forget, this is, I'm I'm out here now. And I'll come back over it this way. I'll never forget, one of my first sermons I preached, it was, again, Sweetheart Missionary Baptist Church. It was where Pastor Willie Clark was the pastor. Small African-American Missionary Baptist Church. That's where I came to know the Lord. And I preached, at that point, it would have been my second or third sermon. And when I did that, I, I, I finished up, I finished preaching, and, and the Lord is kind. Should I have been preaching? Hmm. Was I preaching? Indeed. Um, and the Lord was merciful. Got to start somewhere. That's right. And, I, and so I preached. And then there was, there was a sister, an older, wiser sister, who came up to me after the sermon. I'll never forget this. And I'm at the time, I'm 17. 17 years old when I started preaching. So that answered the question, was I ready to preach? Um, in this fashion. And the Lord, again, the Lord uses it. Mind, just mightily he's used it. She said to me, I have one word for you that I want you to focus on in your ministry. And she said, integrity. When she said that, I didn't think anything of it. I thought, sure. Yeah, I, mean, I got that. Integrity, it's easy. And then the Spirit of the Lord did something tremendous in me. I remember after the fact, even months, sometimes years, reflecting on that moment and being reminded of the importance that my character not outpace my platform. I'm sorry, vice versa. My platform, excuse me. My platform not outpace my character. That as a minister of the gospel, I would speak out of the transformation that is happening in my own life and that if that ever stopped, ceased happening, that the Lord would be merciful 
to remove me for my own soul and for the souls of others. And it was just a moment where a sister was faithful to just warn me as a young man because I think young men may struggle with some amount of pride. I know that because I, I was one and in some sense I is one, okay? Anyway, now I'm coming back here. We were over there. I'm back over here now. So she was helping me see something I didn't even know was there, a lack of integrity. I didn't know it was there. Blinded to it completely. And it was months, even years later, where the Lord began to more and more reveal this in my life and the importance of focusing by God's grace and through the work of the Spirit on walking in the character of Christ. So that's the first why, as it were. We should give and receive accountability to protect against the deceitfulness of sin. Now, the second purpose, second answer to the question, why, really related to the first. We should give and receive accountability to enable endurance in Christ. We should give and receive accountability to enable endurance in Christ. We do not have time to flesh this out entirely or even to the degree that I would like to flesh this out. But nothing that I have said, let me be really clear, nothing that I have said compromises our belief that those who are authentically saved can never lose or forfeit their salvation. So if you've heard me say that, if you've, if you've heard me this morning say you can genuinely come to trust in Jesus Christ, be rescued by the power of the Spirit, be in a right relationship with God, and at some point forfeit and lose that salvation, you've not heard me accurately, and perhaps I've not spoken accurately. Certainly possible as well. No, the text, Hebrews 3, and by the way, the book of Hebrews as a whole, Hebrews as a whole just highlights the following two realities alongside the belief that genuine Christians will endure. Genuine Christians will endure. Don't misunderstand, but there are two realities that are highlighted or accented throughout Hebrews, and here they are. Endurance is necessary. We need to hear that. Endurance is necessary. It's not an option. Second, one of the ways God graciously empowers us to endure, because it does come from the Lord, one of the ways he graciously empowers us to endure is through the giving and receiving of accountability. That's it. This is an instrument. Accountability is an instrument of continuing to trust in Jesus Christ, continuing to grow in Christ's likeness, and continuing to reject what displeases the Lord so that we have the privilege of dying in faith, in faith and in faithfulness. Robert Robinson, we're going to wrap up with, with Robert. Robert Robinson was converted under the ministry of George Whitfield in the 18th century. And he was converted out of a life of rebellion as a young man. In fact, Robinson went to hear Whitfield in order to mock him. Interesting enough, by the way. The word of God is powerful. 
and it will not return void. So Robinson gathered with a group of his friends, went to mock George Whitfield and the hearers who were responded to the, responding to the message, and eventually the message George Whitfield preached took hold of Robinson's heart, and he repented and believed. And yet, even as a follower of Christ, Robert experienced the consistent lure of the world, not simply outside of him, but inside of him. And this is why he penned words in a hymn that I think are especially relevant for us this Lord's Day morning. The hymn is, Come Thou Fount. He wrote these words, O to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Now here it is. Prone to wonder. Every one of us. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What's the answer? Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. And may I be so bold as to explain that last line. One of the ways God takes our hearts and seals them for his courts above is their mutual accountability in the body of Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess the deceitfulness of our own sin. And even in confessing our own sin, we are aware that if we are deceived this morning, we aren't able to see clearly what we need to see. But you have not left us to go at this Christian life alone. You've given us the privilege of being members in the body of Christ and through the body of Christ, you've called us to invite others to speak into our lives and then to give and provide such accountability to others and we pray, Lord, that you would use, you would use the body, use the church, use us as members of the church to give and receive humble, patient, and loving accountability so that we are better guarded against the deceitfulness of our own sin and so that we help our brothers and sisters guard against the deceitfulness of their own sin and so that through Christian accountability we might endure in faith and faithfulness until the end for your glory. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.